Greetings, dear listeners. Got the band back together this week in more ways than one. Yes, Shadi and I are doing an episode after trading off with Sam and Christine for two weeks. But more importantly, we finally brought on our good friend Rachel Rizzo for a chat. The subject is her excellent new essay, which we both think you must check out. No spoilers, but this episode is a prime example of why I love doing the podcast. An easy, familiar conversation with close friends that gets us thinking and exploring deep things together. You may have noticed we moved to Substack recently. We hope you'll head on over and check out all the new content, the essays, the debates, and the guest writers, like Rachel. Do consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation. Become part of the crowd. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Okay, so um... so so look, Shadi. I, I think I think what we're doing here today, uh, I think we're, we're writing a writing a historic injustice. I feel like, <laughs> and uh, the historic injustice is the fact that uh, our our very close friend Rachel Rizzo uh, has written not one but two uh, pieces for us at Wisdom of Crowds. Yeah. Uh, the first one was, gosh, I don't even have it in front of me, but it was it like was years August ago. 2021. It was August 2021. It was a year in like 10 months ago. And, and I, I just went back and, and reread the piece and it is, it's, it's really stunning. It's like, it's, 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 it's a really incredible piece. And, and, you know, just a couple of words uh, on it. Um, first, it's just like, it's really nice and sort of gratifying what you and I have sort of been able to do at Wisdom of Crowds is to actually like create something where uh, people we know, like friends, all sorts of people come and just sort of are able to write on it. And, you know, for people that don't know Rachel, Rachel is a uh, an accomplished, uh, you know, foreign policy person, uh, Europe specialist, NATO person, now becoming an India and Africa specialist <laughs> as well. Um, uh, but uh, not someone who who writes about this sort of stuff, and I, you know, I I I think that really was like one of the, uh, one of our early guest essays, which I really think was just like I don't know, it was just fantastic, just really an excellent essay, um, and uh, and then we didn't have Rachel on. We had her on in like a a bonus episode, an excellent bonus episode. If people want to go like digging it out. It was about the chicken. That was coup. the Egyptian. That was the Egyptian chicken coup. Oh yeah, that's, that's a classic. Right. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, and now she's written a second piece for us, which is uh, also fantastic. Also, I don't know, again, I think Rachel, outside of her normal comfort zone, in a different register than the first essay. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, we have some, some uh, reckoning here, Shadi, that like we didn't have her on last time. And, uh, uh, you know, yeah. I'm glad we have her on this time because she's, again, now like, leaving for another globetrotting adventure for about a month. So it's it's important that we get her because it could happen again. Like two sins like that, Shadi. I don't know what we, how we could ever recover from that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this. I don't know what's going to happen. And we'll have to wait and see. With because, the episode or just like in general? 
Oh yeah, with Rachel Rizzo's career, sure that <laughs> yeah. too. Um, but also, I meant actually just the next um, hour to an hour and a half. Like we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what Demir has up his sleeve. Good Lord, nothing. And because I've never terrifying. done, because <laughs> I've never done a podcast like one that's public with Rachel. Like I, I, I'm, I just don't know. So You're scared. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to learn more about Rachel's life, though, because I think what's great about these two pieces, um, the most recent one, which came out um, today, today. Oh, I, I don't want to time peg it. Um, no, time oh, peg it. It's okay. fine. People, people want to know that this was recorded the day the piece oh, came wow. out, that it's fresh. Yeah, That's good. good. They'll understand they're seeing it on Friday. It's OK. OK, so today's essay is it's titled Do Liberals Have a God Problem? How Therapy Has Replaced Religion on Dating Apps and Everywhere Else. And then the previous one was called Among the Believers. Great title. Um, and we'll include... You, honestly, like guys, after you finish listening to this, go forth and read both of these pieces. Because uh, they're... I, you know, I'm not just saying this because Rachel's a good friend. Um when I was rereading the older piece on growing up non-Mormon in Utah, I I actually thought to myself, this feels like I'm reading a novel. The way that you just capture the experiences and and kind of share them in a way that's open, frank, and insightful, and it's also just beautifully written as well. Like you have a really good prose style which makes me think that you could write a memoir or a novel if you decide to in the future, because the, anyway, like let's, let's get to, I know we get, we get to go on saying all these amazing things about both pieces, but they capture, I think part of your story and an evolution in your own life and spiritual orientation so maybe just with that, tell us a little bit about what's been on your mind lately. What prompted the most recent essay, which deals again with issues around belief, spirituality, and what it means to have meaning and community. And you're wrestling with those issues. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think the two essays are related in the sense that they both try to get to pretty deep questions. The first, the first essay was like, who am I? You know, what, what, what is it that shapes me? And what were the, um, you know, like what was the culture that basically created who I am? Um, and the second one was like, why am I here? Like what, what drives me? Where do I find meaning? And I think what prompted this second essay was sort of this professional, actually, this professional evolution that I've thought about and gone through over the last probably 18 months, where I feel like I've consciously tried to lose some of my professional ambition, which is... Hmm really hard to say and do in, in DC because it's a place that I think is so driven by professional ambition that if you admit that that's not one of the things that drives you, it can create a lot of confusion and conversations. Um, but the reason that I started thinking about it was because, you know, I I went through this period of like 18 months where I was applying basically to job after job after job. 
and it was after Biden was elected and you sort of saw this entire city go into overdrive, like professional overdrive. Um, and obviously like love the Atlantic Council, they're very happy there and I'm staying there. But I think for a while, like you sort of get caught up in the engine revving around a new like presidential administration and you hop in and think like, I should want to do all of these things that these other people are doing, but you don't really stop to think like, what what would make me happy? What do I actually want to be doing with my life? Um, and the deeper question of that is like, how do I derive meaning? Where do I find meaning? Um, and I think that's kind of the the question that I started grappling with is like, if it's not, if the the main source of my happiness and contentment is not what I do professionally, and I actually don't want it to be because there's so much more to life than that, then where do I find that meaning? Like what guides me? And I think I'm still trying to figure out an answer for that, but um, the questions that I bring up about like religion and God and faith and belonging sort of all point to that larger question. I also think it's funny, and this is something that I write about in the piece, you know, if you're on dating apps in Washington, you will 100% see people talk openly, and you know, everyone knows this, we're in a very liberal city, uh, Washington, D.C., you will always not always, so you'll see people more often than maybe you would think talk about on their dating profiles the fact that they are like actively in therapy. They're doing the work, right, as the, as the phrase goes. And I found that interesting because I see that a lot, but I rarely see people make open professions of religious faith of any kind. Like, you might have someone on their page say that they're Christian or Muslim or Jewish, but like going further than that, I think it, I would be really surprised to see it. And so just like a combination of these things sort of led me down this path of these, trying to like unpack these bigger thoughts about life and meaning. And that's where the piece came from, I guess. And you give two really good examples of things that you might imagine someone could share on a dating app if they were religious, but that you almost never see. And I like them because I think it's helpful for listeners to maybe imagine if this would be possible. So one example is someone on a dating app saying, quote unquote, we'll get along if you also go to church on Sundays. I've like, never seen oh, that. Oh, I would. But so the reason that I said that specific thing is because like I'm thinking about the uh, the app Hinge specifically. Yeah. And it gives you these prompts, right? Like it gives you like the beginning of a sentence about, you know, tons of different things. Then like you fill the rest of the sentence out. So like we'll get along if is a prompt on Hinge and you can finish that with anything you want. So like will get along if you're also in therapy is something I've definitely seen. And Shadi, like you just said, will get along if you also go to church on Sundays, like would be so surprised to see something like that. I yeah. never have. Yeah. And the other example that you give is someone <laughs> saying, one thing you should know about me is I'm a committed and practicing Muslim. 
Yeah. Not going to see that one. <laughs> you're definitely not going to. No, you're not going to see that one. But you will say someone say, um, one thing you should know about me is that I am in therapy. Or like one oh. thing that you should know about me is I'm doing the work and doing the work. Oh, God, doing the work. So, doing the work. Great. Can, yeah, can we talk about, can, I, I do want to really talk about like doing the work, but maybe like I want to just sort of talk about it in a a bit later when we get into like liberalism, because to me, that's like the insane thing about this, because do the yeah. work is exact. That's what irritates me more than anything. It's not therapy. It's do the work shit. It's, right. Yeah. Well, let me just like say now, I do not go on online dates. I re- I open the piece, if you've read it, with I hate online dating and I despise online dating. I've gone on two online dates in my entire life, one earlier this year, one in 2014. And so basically what I do on dating apps is I just scroll and I see people that are interesting, but like it never goes any farther than that. I don't know why, but. In other words, all of you are going to have to wait another nine years for Rachel (laughs) to get back on a dating app. Nine year increments. No, but but let me, let me, let me ask you one thing. I mean, it's something Rachel, when, when you uh, were sort of like doing the edits of the piece, uh, you know, I think you and I were going back and forth on it. Shadi, uh, like, have you gone on like Muslim dating apps? Because that's the thing. The other thing that that part of the essay uh, sort of highlighted for me is that that there's kind of is it there's kind of a segmentation in online dating. There's like those like Christian dating apps. There's like yeah. Muslim dating apps. And then there's like secular liberal dating apps, which the religion is therapy, it seems like. So it's it is they're segmenting by. Uh, by faith, right? Well, but look, but there aren't secular liberal dating apps, to my knowledge. Those are just the normal dating apps. So that's no, like the. But that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. the normal ones, they also have a faith. It's called therapy. Right. Like it's so it, you you literally have like Jewish dating apps. You have like J Date. You have the Salam app for Muslims, which yeah. I get ads for weirdly. Like <laughs> I don't know why. After this essay, <laughs> after, this. after reading the Quran. <laughs> It's going to be off the charts now for sure. But but like it's funny, right? It's 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 not that you have normal secular dating apps, you have therapy apps. Like literally it's it's mapping onto that now. Like you could you could you could legitimately do I think probably a pretty uh I mean, obviously people are registered to several apps at a time, but you you have it's 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 segmenting by faith. And there's yeah, a secular but you also- faith. It also encourages you to segment your own personality because if, as you say, someone's on multiple dating apps, if they're on uh, the Muslim dating app, they'll emphasize their Muslimness to appeal to that particular audience. If they're on a quote-unquote secular dating app, they'll downplay that and maybe emphasize the language of self-care and therapy. So I I hadn't really thought about this all all that much, but I think, like, is that healthy? Like, that... Something about that just doesn't seem particularly healthy. No, but but let me let me let me I mean push you specifically, Shadi, right? I mean, you're very serious about uh, you know, uh, about meeting someone and about and the role that faith plays in that. So it it actually it makes plenty of sense that that uh that these apps are segmenting on faith like this. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's all, you're still sort of clinging to this idea that there are general apps, but they're not that. These are Godless liberals um, <laughs> with a faith in therapy. And you don't want that shit. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't expect that I'm going to marry a godless liberal, as you call them. I mean, but... As I um, call them. 
<laughs> but I mean, you can filter in dating apps like atheist, agnostic, and different things like that. So you can pretty much cross off anyone who self-identifies as an atheist. There yeah. is some adapt, you know, adaptability there. Not to say that atheists are bad people or anything. No, but <laughs> no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't want to entertain such a notion. Um, okay. So that's about dating apps. I do want to get back to the professional aspect because that really resonates with me, Rachel, what you said. And while you were describing your own experience, I'm thinking to myself, join the club, you yeah. and me both. And I think we're both, you know, we've both been contending with how we want to spend the latter years of our lives. Oh, that sounds a little bit. Oh, the latter oh, years. The latter years? The la yeah. <laughs> I'm 35. <laughs> <laughs> or or let, let's say the second half of our lives. With you, it's second different. Second half? <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's living to 110. Oh, what guys. the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so, fair. So um, how, like, can you maybe identify a little bit more what the turning point was? Because you had been more professionally inclined, ambitious, wanted to be in a future administration, but something clicked at some point where you just had, you decided that that wasn't going to be as important to you. And as you, as you know, not everyone in DC is able to do that. Some people live their whole lives in Washington, DC, and that's all they want. That is what they spend perhaps decades aiming for. That senior position at you know, assistant secretary of state or deputy attorney general, whatever it might be, people can orient their whole lives around that. And then they can spend many years like not paying attention to their own kids and not being there, um, you know, in those in those kind of crucial early years when their children are actually developing personalities. And then they're on their deathbeds and wondering like, oh, I was assistant secretary of state. But I wasn't there for my son when he needed me. Are you sure they wonder that? I think they're just sit laying on their deathbed and they're like, fuck yeah, I was assistant secretary of state, motherfucker. <laughs> As the yes, kids are running around weeping around them, they're like, I did it. I did everything that matters. I bombed a small country. <laughs> you know, that's funny because no. I, there are actually probably are people who do look back and don't have any regrets and they probably yeah. do think of and that's also quite sad and perhaps yeah. even sadder but anyway like Rachel tell us more about the evolution how did it happen so I think it was probably there's three parts here the first is just moving to Berlin in 2019 and physically removing myself from Washington and you guys know like you were my good friends and you know that that was a tough year for many reasons. Like just living in Germany is sort of hard, <laughs> but it also gave me a, a chance to get outside of Washington and do other things and not be sort of like drawn to the shiny parties and jobs that we're all supposed to want to have and go to. And so it just sort of reoriented a little bit in that sense. The second was coming back and spending like, months at a time back in Salt Lake City with my mom and dad. And it was, that was sort of what made me write, I think, my first essay on this reflection of growing up as a Greek Orthodox religious minority in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, surrounded by Mormons. Um, but like, I could have come back from Berlin and 
just stayed in DC and spent the pandemic here. And I actively chose not to do that. Like I came back occasionally, but I spent, I think it was nine or 10 months over the course of a year and a half where I was back home in Salt Lake City. Do I was working, like I, I had a job um, and it was based in DC, but I just wasn't physically here. And of course, everything sort of slowed down at that time also. And as we found ourselves sort of like getting out of the the pandemic and starting to rev our engines again and like gather again and go to things again, I, I have found it very difficult for me to uh, find the sort of energy and excitement for that lifestyle that I once did. And um, I think that's sort of part of it. But the, the, the third thing was, you know, I, it's really easy, I think, to get caught up in professional accomplishments here because like you said, we're all so driven by it. It's like a city of 700,000 type A people driven by ambition. Um, and I spent a bunch of time applying for these various jobs in the administration, on the Hill, and there were a few of them where I would make it to the final two and spend like weeks prepping, writing memos, talking to people, preparing for interviews, like putting your entire life on hold almost and putting your entire self-worth on like the outcome of this job application, right? And I got rejected from all of them. And mentally, that was extremely difficult for me to deal with. Like, I couldn't make sense of why those things were happening. It was demoralizing. It was confusing. But then when I took a step back for a while, I was like, I don't think those would have made me happy anyways. Like, I don't think that's actually what I want my life to be driven by. I, you know, I appreciate the fact that that does make people happy and that people find meaning in that and they it, they see it as a bigger calling. But like, do I really want to spend 16 or 17 hours a day at the Pentagon or at on Capitol Hill? Um, I don't know. I think there are other things in my life that make me happier than that. And that's sort of what I want to spend my time on. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it was sort of a mix of like trying to figure out what I'm doing and where I'm going. And if I want those questions to be answered solely by what I do professionally. And the answer to that question, when I really, really thought about it was no. But Hmm. so, you know, the, the, the link here, uh, and this can sort of get us deeper into the essay. Um, I mean, everything you said there, I think is implicit, but the other part that, that I think is a little bit more explicit is the is the question of 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 fate, um, yeah. and that's something that comes into the in the middle of the essay. Uh, your discussion about like how you're approaching predestination, and I mean, just to hear you describe it right now, it's 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 coping with these difficulties and sort of thinking about like you know was this meant to be or was it not meant to be? I know. Talk a little bit. I thought that was a really interesting part of the essay, but maybe just for our listeners here who haven't read it yet, talk a little bit about how you think about about fate and free will and how those those basically work in your head 
Uh, yeah. Or how you, you sort of like work through that. I mean, I think that was in an, I think I sort of dug into that a little deeper in an earlier version of the essay and we decided to get rid of it for a few reasons. No, um, no. Bummer. Well, that's why we're going to talk about it here. <laughs> yeah, we gotta have, we gotta save some for the pod. <laughs> yeah, Demir was like, take out this paragraph. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that in person. Um, but no, I mean, I I just inherently found myself coping with those things that were outside of my control by deeply believing, like really believing, in that none of those jobs were part of my path. They were not what was meant to happen to me. They were not meant to be uh, for me. And I realized that like, that's how I think of a lot of aspects of my life. Like if like the way that I make decisions, if, I, if I'm not sure about something I'm trying to decide for or against or whatever, I sort of find comfort in the fact that like whatever path has been laid for me has is there and what therefore whatever I choose to do is inherently the right decision even if it's the wrong decision does that make sense like um the way that I think about it is that I sort of talk about this in the essay is that I see this idea of predestination and free will as complementary instead of contradictory like us as humans we are meant to we're, we're, we're meant to struggle. We're meant to be faced with difficulty. We're meant to make decisions every day. Some of them are very easy. Some of them are difficult. They're not always super difficult. Most decisions that we make are pretty mundane, if you think about it. Um, but when dealing with the really tough questions of life and when dealing with things that are outside of our control, I find comfort in the fact that like, it's part of a larger path that I am following and that brings me comfort, I guess. Yeah. So this uh, is to, some, uh, can hmm. you, I, I just, I want to ask you specifically like on yeah. this, you know, react obviously, however you want, but I want to, I want to know how you think about free will. We've kicked this around a bit before on episodes, but you know, I mean, I, I, and I think you've talked about like how, how this stuff functions in Islam, but I'm, I'm also just curious, uh, how much Rachel's approach resonates with your approach on this sort of stuff. And in general, because I, I think this is one of those, you know, getting into philosophy, it's one of the most interesting and provocative um, things about how to think about life. Uh, so I just, I'm, I'm just curious specifically how you do it before you even pivot into to different questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my basic view, and I'm going to oversimplify things here, is that God knows what we will do before we do it. So in some sense, our lives and our fates are written. But I think that that's a difficult thing for people to get their heads around because they think, well, if something is written, that means I may not have as much choice or agency in certain matters as I might think. Because after all, it's known, it's written, and so forth. So I, I diverge a little bit on that point, and I see it more as we have, we have agency and choice. God is not necessarily making us do one thing or another. He only knows. It's, so it's more a question of knowledge of what we do rather than causing what we do in a very basic sense. 
Now, um, that I, I struggle with the idea that everything is meant to be. And, uh, you know, I want to unpack this a little bit with, with Rachel. Like, what does it, what does it mean for something to be meant to be? Or, you know, obviously if things are outside of our control, then, you know, we can say that the rest is up to God or um, fate or the universe or whatever we want to use for that. But I think it becomes more complicated when our pain or suffering is a direct result of choices we made or choices we didn't make. Because then how can we really say it was meant to be that way? It could have been otherwise. And we either experienced a lapse of judgment or we committed a moral error. I think especially when it comes to moral error, because God gives us free will in order to judge us ultimately. There can't be vice without virtue. There can't be sin without the free choice of committing sins. Because if God prevented us or made it much more difficult for us as humans to commit sins, then like, you know, then what's the point? I mean, the whole point, judgment requires, uh, judgment requires failure and sin, so on and so forth. So I, I, I guess I just don't know. Like if I made a mistake and if I made a series of mistakes over a certain time period, then how is that meant to be? That is my responsibility at some level. I made those choices. I could have chose differently, and I might even be able to remember like certain divergent paths in in the in the in the road, so to speak. Um, so how do you how do you view that, Rachel? Also, Rachel, I mean, it's it's notable just what Shadi was saying there. The word sin doesn't appear in your essay. No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, look, Shadi, I don't think that we're saying anything that that's contradictory. I guess maybe you sort of described what I was trying to say in a little bit better way, um, where God already knows what we are choosing. And in that sense, like the path has almost already been laid for us. But like, don't you think that life is also about making mistakes? Like it's about making the wrong decision sometimes because if you never make the wrong decision, you don't learn anything. Like you sort of just coast through and everything is is easy. Um, you're not supposed to always do the right thing. You're supposed to, things are supposed to be difficult sometimes. You're supposed to flounder. You're supposed to make mistakes so that it gets you back on, I guess, the right path maybe. I mean, we've all, I've had experiences as we all have that I look back and I think that was I mean, that was, that was wrong. Like what I, what I chose to do in that moment was wrong, but I am where I am now partially because I made those decisions and I can't go back and change that. The only thing that I can change or the only thing that I have control over are the decisions that I make now and going forward. Um, yeah. And, but is yeah, there so sin, I've, Rachel? Like, I mean, that's cause that's, I think that's the main divergence between what you you wrote and what you're saying now in Shadi, because Shadi's putting a lot of weight on on moral agency, on you know, there's that tension with free will and knowledge of uh, you know the universal, the universe, God, whatever. 
um, and, and our ability to choose. And Shadi weighs in heavily on the responsibility to choose and to choose right versus wrong or to make the right decision, which he said the word sin in there. Now, like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really believe in sin, so this is not complicated for me, but it's interesting. And in many ways, like, I don't know, I, 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 I get where you're coming from, but without really recourse to the universe or God, I like, I, I get your, your predestination thing. I just express it even differently from the two of you. But let me press you a little bit more on sin and and what Shadi is getting at there. Do you do you do you? How does that fit figure? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that exists because you know the difference between right and wrong in your own mind. Like, even if you don't believe in God, Demir, even if you're not like, if even if there's not the end of the path that you're trying to get to or heaven, you know. You, in your mind, know when you have done something or are going to do something where you have to choose between right and wrong. Um, and you probably actively choose more often than not to do the right thing, I would say. So doesn't that suggest that you believe in some sort of sin, even if you decide to define it differently? I mean, I think that's fair. I, I think, you know, we make choices. Uh, I mean, I... I don't know, get to sort of a rabbit hole about like my weird thoughts about free will. But but let's just say that I think that, you know, you have to live life as if you believe you have free will um, and you make decisions. And, you know, uh, I think if you like drill down into that, it gets kind of naughty about like any decision you make, like what where that comes from. We discussed this on a previous episode. I mean, you just have to posit a soul to do that. And I'm not really ready to do that. So as a result, I'm more comfortable saying that if you dig too deep, you actually don't see much free will there. But let's say, you know, just to function in society, you need to have free will. I do think that that we, uh, within that framework, learn from experience. And I think we're, you know, socially conditioned in all sorts of ways to make one decision over another. And these things shape who we are. And as we function in society, we certainly learn and are, are you know, better or worse. I think for Shadi, though, it's, you know, it's tied, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Shadi, jump in, but it, like it's tied to to uh, morals that are tied to the Almighty, and that's what I'm pushing you on it. Like, is the universe moral? Uh, yeah. Because for Shadi, it definitely is. Okay, so just a couple points here. So I wrote a piece for Wisdom of Crowds some time back about Vladimir Putin and the fact that I, as a believer, have there's a certain solace and satisfaction with the knowledge that, at least from my perspective, Vladimir Putin will almost spend um, something close to an eternity in hellfire. Maybe not an why, eternity. Why less there's than some... an eternity? He'll be well. Redeemed. I mean, because he's going to get the... eighty to hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> there are some like, well, look, it's not for me to make these ultimate judgments. And that's why I only think that it's it's quite likely, but ultimately God is the only judge. But that I think that there's something, but this is why I think re religion, religion offers the prospect of final justice, a justice that is not likely to occur in this world. And there is something reassuring about this, because if there wasn't hell, let's say there was only heaven or some or some kind of like, purgatory in heaven, then how that seems like a violation of justice at some fundamental level. And this gets to the, the point that I made in the essay. It, it wouldn't be quite right from my perspective for God to interfere and stop Putin from committing heinous acts 
because then that would be violating Putin's free will. And then we wouldn't be able to judge. There wouldn't be a judgment day where then God sort of takes account of everything Putin has done and then renders judgment. Because if he had been stopping Putin from committing evil, then then that would be that. So at some level, there has. that's why this is also an answer to the the problem of theodicy, the question of why God permits evil. If God stopped evil from happening, if he prevented sin before it was committed, then that would basically undermine the whole moral structure of the universe. So that's just one point. But, um, you know, on what Rachel said about mistakes and learning, well, I think what was also interesting about Rachel's description, I think she's getting at something. I, I was thinking about natural law theory there. I mean, the Christian notion, but also there's analogs in Islam, that people people have a conscience. They are they have a basic sense of right and wrong on the big questions, without necessarily um, having to read scripture or without being exposed to prophecy. That even if you put someone in a random island in the middle of nowhere with no knowledge of traditional religion they will incline towards, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't kill the other people on this island because— You've, you've read Lord of the Flies, yeah? Yeah, but that's a novel. That's, that's a novel, <laughs> and it's, it's completely untrue. If you put a bunch of children, they don't turn into feral beasts on an island. They develop a moral code. Well, yeah, I don't believe in the account of morality that we have in Lord of, Lord of the— I was going to say Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Lord of the Rings as well. Yeah, but look, I mean— so if God is our creator, then presumably he inscribed something is written in our hearts, even if we don't realize it. This is the idea behind natural law, like from a Christian perspective, that it's there. And when I was listening to what Rachel was saying, she's like, on average, we tend to do more good than bad, or a lot of us don't commit murder. Like, it's actually kind of incredible when you think about it. The vast majority, I don't know, something like 99 probably seven or eight percent of humankind does not commit murder. That is a powerful thing. Like, how is that even possible? Well, there's also other things that most humans don't do. Like most don't steal. Most don't. Um... <laughs> <laughs> running out. Of, Rachel's running out, running of, out things. of things. <laughs> most don't like cheat on their spouses. Not true. No, well, no, that's true. It's like that's true. It's like no, but I mean, but guys, but guys, I hold mean, on. But let me let me push back on this. I mean, but seriously, <laughs> this is just socialization. I mean, basically, it's 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 something that it's it's also true that 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 uh, you know when you're 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 thrust in a society that is very alien to you, you struggle to figure out the rules of the society. You know, just at a very basic level, not the moral rules. And it's it is, I think, you know, you can then point that, like, you know. All living societies have a prohibition against murder. True. And then if this is some sort of moral law to you that you derive from God, I suppose there's nothing to be said against that. But, but I would just argue that it's just one of these things that, that pragmatically arises from when you have a bunch of people getting together. Authority comes through when, like, an authority, a human authority comes in. And generally, yeah, that's, you sort of start invoking a higher authority as the, as the community grows, as the village elder is unable to exert personal authority, he starts sort of pointing to a larger authority that is 
But, you know, I think there is something in human beings that requires authority. Absolutely. And that that's how, like, external legal stuff. I've got a theory that doesn't require God for you, which I would just posit to you is without faith, without the leap of faith, um, at least as plausible on the merits as, as anything you're gesturing at here. You don't have to buy it, but I'm just saying, like, there's a leap here that, you know, you're, you're free to make. I just want to push you that there's a leap here, that it's not self-evident. Natural law is the least self-evident thing to me personally uh, that there is in these Right, but, but, but Demir, like, I, okay, I, I'm being, to be just slightly flippant here, it sort of doesn't matter a whole lot what you think on this question, because if God exists... Sure, but that's and the he point. created you, then you don't really have much of a say in the matter. Fine. That's is Demir going fine. to hell in your eyes, Shadi? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no. Is that Sh- the bigger question because, we need to get no. at? <laughs> Rachel, the, the whole point of this podcast is Shadi's been trying to convert me, and Shadi will save me when, like in the final episode, episode 362, I come out as a practicing Muslim. Uh, and at that we point, both I will are, be saved. eventually, for Shadi. I will be saved, and Shadi gets plus 20 in his in I his, mean like, luckily I have a more inclusive view of salvation I don't think that one needs to be Muslim but that, that's a bigger debate that Muslims have been having for centuries and Christians have as well I mean the you know the the um, project I do with my evangelical friend you know we you know we sometimes talk about the fact that he wants to convert me by definition evangelic ev- evangelicals want to evangelize um, but okay, but before I lose, shoddy, but just on the flippancy though, like, I mean, you're just proving my point that, that sure, like to a believer, it doesn't matter. But to me, your argument also doesn't matter. So I'm just saying there's, <laughs> there's like a, there's a, there's like a huge gulf there that can only be bridged, not through, not through like a reasoned debate. And this is, I mean, again, this is why I think Rachel's essay is, uh, so good is because it, she's grappling towards something, um, in her own personal sort of excavation of herself, uh, but it's still leading to a leap of faith, ultimately. Uh, that's why I was sort of pushing on the question of evil, um, and that's how we ended up on this question of, you know, just like moral judgments outside of God. I'm My only point to all of that was that, um, you know, I, I think that, 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 that uh, Shadi, you have a very transcendent sense of evil. I don't. Mine's very contingent. Uh, and I guess, Rachel, my question to you is how transcendent is your sense of evil? How, how, how much does your sense of right and wrong to you, do you believe comes from a higher power? That is to say, does the higher power judge in some fundamental way? Because I don't think that's in your essay, and I, it's, I think it's an oh, interesting question. But actually, question. it is a little bit, Demir, and, let, and maybe add, let me add to the question for Rachel— like, I think what you, or maybe I'm imagining this, but I think that you have, either in the piece or in conversations that we have, <laughs> ha- have made the point that where you, you used to see it as a higher power or the universe, you know, when secular people refer to like energy and that sort of thing, it's kind of a cop out. But I think that you've said that over time, you're like, wait a second, it isn't the universe. It isn't merely energy. This isn't a real account of what I'm experiencing. That you felt that what you used to describe as energy or a higher power is actually God. You've come to the realization that you are praying to God as a distinct en- entity that can be called God. Is that is yeah. that 
fair or accurate? Yeah. What, but I also think that like um, that gets into the broader question that I w- sort of pointed out in the essay where I've also struggled with Christianity in a sense, because I see God as one thing. I don't see God as a trinity, right? As we talk about in Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism. Um, so you're right. Like I, I went through a period of thinking to myself, like, what is, like, what is this higher power? Like, what is, is it energy? Is it the universe? Like, no, the way I, the way I think about it is, is in the sense of God. And there's someone, um, I'm actually not sure who this person is, but they, uh, they wrote a comment on the piece on Substack today. Do you guys care if I go back and look at it really fast? Yeah, sure, because I think it. it's actually super interesting. This Read it aloud and, and, and read it in a dramatic voice as Shadi often does Please. when he reads things. <laughs> um, I'm trying to go back and find this because I, you guys, this is my first day with a Substack account and I still have no idea <laughs> how to work this. Okay, okay, here's the piece. Um, okay, here is the comment. It's, his name is John Haas. And he said that first, this is as dramatic as I'm going to get. That first step from something, the universe, cosmos, ground of being, whatever, to admitting it's God is a huge one. It changes everything or should and will if we keep going. I was a young man, an atheist slash agnostic, wrestling with questions as so many do when one day at work it dawned on me. I haven't admitted it even to myself yet, but I think I believe in God. I wasn't ready to embrace it though. And my next thought was put this aside until you have some time to go out into the desert and meditate on this. And then if you still think so, you can admit it to yourself. It was an odd experience in that I was confronted with layers of consciousness I wasn't previously aware of. But then I really felt that if I delayed, it would be a disaster, a betrayal even of some kind. Anyway, keep going. It's an adventure like any relationship. Wow. That is, I, I that didn't see that comment. comment. That's I, remarkable. I it it's, it's, yeah. a, it's really incredible, especially the part where, you, where he says, I was confronted with layers that I wasn't previously aware of. But then it really felt if I delayed, it would be a betrayal of some kind. And that, I think, kind of got to the heart of how I started thinking about this in the last little while. Like, if I believe in God and I still actively choose not to acknowledge that, like, I'm, I'm betraying something here. Like, it doesn't, it, 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 this doesn't seem, this doesn't seem right to me. Um, and I don't but know. If that, you be, but, but if you believe in God, presumably he would know that deep down you believe, even if you haven't formally or publicly acknowledged it, right? He would see that in your heart. Wait, well, wait, what do you wait. mean acknowledge it? I mean, no, no, no. acknowledge it to myself, like talk about uh, it openly. And, and, and I say that in the way, kind of going back to what we were saying about, you used to say things like the universe, and then you started saying God. As soon as I sort of came to this conclusion that like, it's not the universe for me, it is God. And if I don't talk about that, if, if I don't acknowledge that openly, then there's like some sort of betrayal there. Mm. Um, but, so, but I just so, you know, thought you know, that was a really well thought out comment. It was, and, and I read it too, but let me then like push you on it because those per- parts are really well written. But the part that really jumped out at me was the keep going part. And, and so let me throw this out there for you and then you react. Um, so far in our conversation, 
I, I, I feel like you're still pushing back on the idea that God is a moral force, that still morality inheres in individuals and choices, and the good and bad is a judgment that, that comes from human beings, which I think is, you know, as you said in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your piece, you know, you're, you're a, a liberal millennial, uh, you know, brought up in a broadly secular, you know, I mean, you're, you're raised religious and lived in a religious sphere in your first essay, but you've grown up as a, as a modern millennial liberal secular, more or less, and you're realizing that that's not fully right. Um, is it, is it fair to say that, that like you're, you're now just only grappling with the moral aspect of it, this thing that I'm pushing between you and Shadi? I mean, I think Shadi feels that, again, Shadi, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that like, you know, moral goodness comes from God. And I don't think Yet you're quite there, Rachel, but you might get there. Is that fair? I would I would rephrase slightly to say I don't think moral goodness is possible without God, right. which is slightly different. Fair. So, Rach? So does that mean Demir is immoral? No, no, no. I, I don't mean that people can't be morally good. I just mean that ultimately it emanates from a creator. Mm. That it's not accidental. It's not sort of a contingent product of evolutionary design. Um, that it's there is something that led this to be, and everyone has it, whether or not they're a believer at at some level. That's th- that's more. Yeah. That's sort of what you think. But but the but the important thing though, again, just to to push on this is is that question of keep going. Like, do you feel? Do you do you do you? I th- I feel like that would be the leap to to make you like a full call it believer is to to give moral agency to this force in a way I don't think you do yet. Yeah, but look, but Demir, look, keep in mind yeah. that what I've described isn't how all believers view these issues. No. This is a very particular approach that I have based on my own background and study. And but even Muslims think, among themselves disagree on some of these I'm not, points. I'm not saying you're representative of Islam. I, I am making a claim, though, that I think um, what the commenter is making I think it's the same claim as, as, as I think he identified this in Rachel's piece, and I'm trying to sort of tease it out, is, is the keep going part, that you're not quite there yet, that, that you've, you've, you feel like, that, that, like you've, uh, stuff has been revealed to you, or you've come to realize certain things, um, but that, that like there's, there's still a path to travel to being actually truly faithful, well, faithful, whatever. No, I mean, mm-hmm. there's faith. Uh, that's that's getting the words are getting messy there. But but like maybe to become truly religious or is to ascribe morality to, as you said, Shadi, like the moral universe. To understand the universe as a moral thing, morality has to be ascribed to it somehow. It doesn't. It's there's there's a there's because again, let me make my point clear. I think it's 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 sort of clear is that like, I don't, I don't get caught up in this. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't find that very problematic at all. So I'm not even close to the trip, the journey, the discovery process that you're on. Um, But, but it's, I think that's, that's, it, it feels like to me, like that might be the inflection point. And maybe that's the part, almost the part where that leap that we've been talking about a lot in the, on the, on the, on the pod recently, it's that leap that, that 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 posits an absolute good rather and that absolute good can only be truly absolute 
if it's transcendent. I mean, okay. you're basically mm. just talking about the existence of heaven and hell, right? Yes, but but I think heaven and hell can only exist again if you posit the good as an absolute. Okay, Demir, I think you might be my sense is you might be complicating matters. I think the most important thing here is whether or not someone feels God's presence. And I, that that's a question that I wanted to turn to Rachel because it seems to me, based on the essay, that what's changed perhaps isn't some kind of, you know, set of intellectual or philosophical conclusions about the nature of absolute good. It's more that, I don't know, maybe Rachel feels God and senses his presence in a way she didn't previously. There, like, you feel that there's something else out there. And when you talk about the act of praying to God, it's no longer an abstraction. You feel like you are praying to something real. I think I've always felt like that. Um, but how you talk about something real, I think, is what maybe has changed a little bit. So you, f you feel his presence? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't really know what that means like do i do i feel like i'm sitting here in my kitchen like surrounded by like a little like orb of light and like that's god like no i don't but do i feel you know like when especially when you have when you're faced with like a really difficult decision i guess is is kind of how i think about it like do i feel a sense of comfort like with whatever I choose, or do I feel a sense of comfort when something happens to me that's really hard to deal with? Yeah, I do. And if that sense of comfort is God, then I guess, then I guess, yeah. But like, I don't know, that's really interesting. Do you feel like you go about your day, just the banalities of life, waking up in the morning? Um, I mean, I guess if, if prayer is a part of it, then, then yeah, you probably would. But like, just existing throughout the day, do you feel the presence of God around you all the time? Well, here's actually, okay, before you answer that, this is what I think is really interesting about how I think about this sometimes. Like, I have felt closer to God in moments that have nothing to do with religiosity, whether that's like being in the mountains or sitting alone somewhere looking at beautiful things and thinking to myself, like, I feel so lucky I get to be a part of this and to see this. How did I get to be so lucky? Like, I feel God in that sense uh, very often, I guess. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of but a winding seemed, answer to your question. But, but, but it also seems to me that suffering is crucial to this account. Like, because... As you said, I mean, life does include quite a lot of pain and suffering. And I think what at least the three Abrahamic faiths do, as well as others, is they help people contend with the fact of suffering. And I've I've talked elsewhere about like one of uh one of my favorite verses of the Quran. Well, maybe favorite isn't the right word. But I, I sometimes one? joke and call it the the breakup verse mm. because whenever you like, if you if you have a serious breakup and you're sad, this is what people will tell you, 
And basically, um, roughly the verse says, perhaps you hate a thing, but it is actually good for you. Mm. And perhaps you love something and it turns and it is bad for you. Like this idea that even if really, you know, so I guess self-explanatory, like if, if something really bad happens, like you, you can't anticipate how it might actually be good for you in a way that, in a way that might be surprising or beyond your understanding. So, and that does make people feel better when they're going through a difficult time, including a breakup. It's like, you know, you think that this is going to be the end of the world. You think that you're never going to live without this person and that you're going to be lost. But actually, if you read this verse and if you have faith in God, here is a reminder for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to answer your question, Rachel, and then to just put it back to you, I suppose, um, you know, I struggle with this question of presence. And it, you know, I was also just thinking when you were talking, there's a beautiful song um, by the supergroup Blind Faith from the early 70s, which was led by Eric Clapton. It's one of Clapton's like most beautiful compositions. It's called In the Presence of the Lord. And uh, and he's never done something quite like that since. And we can include a link to that song in the show notes. I love it. But anyway, um, you know, I think that I tend to approach religion in a more intellectual way, precisely as Demir was describing. So everything Demir is saying about like a broader account of morality and transcendence, these are things I think about a lot and I intellectualize them. I'm trying to move away from that approach a little bit and to have a more direct spiritual connection with God because I I ultimately feel like life shouldn't be experienced in thought or it shouldn't only be experienced in thought. Life should be experienced as experience, as something more visceral and intuitive and direct without always sort of... Um, you know, oh, well, let's conceptualize because concepts, concepts in a way can take you further away from the source of inspiration. A concept is a concept. You're creating a narrative. You're adding, you're adding words to something that maybe doesn't need so much words or so much quote unquote thought. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, you know, and maybe that's also kind of, um, maybe too dualistic and it's not a binary because obviously, but you know, intellectual and spiritual, they're not separate, but sometimes there can be a tension. You know, what I think is interesting too, and maybe this sort of flows from what you were saying, you know, when it comes to practicing religion, I mean, religion, I think is supposed to make your life easier rather than harder. Um, and I think if you if you don't actively practice it, um, you're just left with a million choices to make all the time. And it's up to you to sort of decide, like, how do I want to approach this specific situation? If you are guided by certain religious principles, 
that sort of makes some of those decisions for you. Like it, it makes your life a little bit easier and that you can choose to do or not to do certain things because you sort of hold this belief system that you follow and therefore like your life is a little bit easier. Um, yeah. So in the sense that like it maybe takes some of your, um, makes, take some of your choice away, but like in a, in a good way, I guess. Yeah, it addresses the paradox of choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's overwhelming, and we you know we've talked about this in previous episodes that part of the crisis of loneliness and despair is that people are assaulted with all these different possible lives they can live, and it becomes very difficult to know which one is the right life. You sort of talked about this. I think it was Arthur Traldi. Okay. Is that his last name? Oh, Oliver Traldi. Yeah, Oliver that, that yeah. tweet thread. Who yeah, did that. that tweet thread talking about like sometimes I don't feel capable of living my own life because it's there's only one of them and it's so profound. Yeah. Like that's um, so I feel like religion can help with that in a way in that it simplifies your life a little bit. Um, I don't know. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.